Kafka on the Shore, Chapter 17 It's my third night in the cabin. With each passing day, I have grown more used to the silence and how incredibly dark it is. The night doesn't frighten me anymore, or at least not so much. I fill the stove with firewood, settle down in front of it and read. When I get tired, I just pace out and stare at the flames. I never grow tired of looking at them. They come in all shapes and colors and move around like living things. They are born, they connect up, part company and die. When it's not cloudy, I go outside and gaze up at the sky. The stars don't seem as intimidating as before and I'm starting to feel closer to them. Each one gives out its own special light. I identify certain stars and watch how they twinkle in the night. Every once in a while, they blaze more brightly for a moment. The moon hangs there, pale and bright, and if I look closely, it's as if I can make out individual cracks on the surface. I don't form any coherent thoughts, just gaze, enthralled at the sky. Having no music doesn't bother me as much as I thought it would. There's lots of other sounds that take its place. The chirping of the birds, the cries of all sorts of insects, the gurgle of the brook, the rustling of leaves. Rain falls, something scrambles across the cabin roof, and sometimes I hear indescribable sounds I can't explain. I never knew the world was full of so many beautiful natural sounds. I've ignored them in my entire life, but not now. I sit on the porch for hours with my eyes closed, trying to be inconspicuous, picking up each and every sound around me. The woods don't frighten me as much as they used to. I've begun to feel a kind of closeness and respect. That said, I don't venture that far from the cabin and I stay on the path. As long as I follow these rules, it shouldn't get too precarious. That's the important thing. Follow the rules and the woods will wordlessly accept me, sharing some of their peace and beauty. Cross the line though, and the beasts of silence in wait to maul me with razor-sharp claws. I often lie in the little round clearing and let the sunlight wash over me. Eyes closed tight, I give myself up to it. Ears tuned to the wind whipping through the treetops. Wrapped in the deep fragrance of the forest, I listen to the flapping of birds' wings, to the stirring of the ferns. I am freed from gravity and float up just a little, from the ground and drift in the air. Of course, I can't stay there forever. It's a momentary sensation. Open my eyes and it's gone. Still, it's an overwhelming experience, being able to float in the air. It rains hard a couple of times but doesn't last and each time I run outside naked to wash myself. Sometimes I get all sweaty exercising, rip off my clothes and sunbathe on the porch. I drink a lot of tea and concentrate on reading, sitting on the porch or by stove. Books on history, science, folklore, mythology, sociology, psychology, Shakespeare, you name it. Instead of racing straight through, I reread parts I think are the most important till I understand them, to get something tangible out of them. All sorts of knowledge seeps, bit by bit, into my brain. I imagine how great it would be to stay here as long as I wanted. There are lots of books on the shelf I'd like to read, still plenty of food. But I know I'm just passing through, 
and will have to leave before long. This place is too calm, too natural, too complete. I don't deserve it. At least not yet. On the fourth day, Oshima turns up late in the morning. I am stark naked, sprawled on the chair on the porch, dozing in the sun, and don't hear him approach. I don't hear the sound of his car. Shouldering a backpack, he's walked here from the road. He steps quietly onto the porch, sticks out his hand and lightly brushes my head. Startled, I leap to my feet and scramble around for a towel. There isn't one handy. Don't worry about it, Oshima says. When I stayed here, I used to sunbathe nude all the time. It feels great having the sun on places it never reaches. Naked like this in front of him, I feel defenseless and vulnerable, my pubic hair, penis, balls, all exposed. I have no idea what to do. It's a little too late to cover up. Hi, I say, straining to sound casual. So you walked up? It's such a nice day, I decided to, he says. I left the car down by the gate. He takes a towel draped over the railing and hands it to me. I wrap it round my waist and can finally relax. Singing a song in a low voice, he boils water, then takes out flour, eggs and milk from his pack and whips up some pancakes in the frying pan. Tops these with butter and syrup. Then he takes out lettuce, tomatoes and an onion. He's very careful with the kitchen knife as he chops everything up for a salad. We have all this for lunch. So, how are you three days here? He asks, cutting a pancake. I tell him what, that, what a wonderful time I had. I omit the part about going into the woods. Somehow it's better not to talk about it. I'm glad, Oshima says. I was hoping you'd like it here. But we're going back to the city now, aren't we? That's right, it's time to go back. Getting ready to leave, we briskly straighten up the cabin, wash the dishes and put them away on the shelves, clean up the stove. Empty the water pail, shut the valve in the propane tank. Store the food that will last in the cupboard, throw the rest away. Sweep the floor, wipe off the table tops and chairs. Dig a hole outside to bury the rubbish. As Oshima locks up the cabin, I turn to look one last time. Until a minute ago, it felt so real, but now it seems imaginary. Just a few steps is all it takes for everything associated with it to lose all sense of reality. And me, the person who was there until a moment ago now. I now seem imaginary too. It takes 30 minutes to walk to where Oshima parked the car and we hardly exchange a word as we go down the mountain road. Oshima's humming some melody. I let my mind wander. At the bottom, the little green sports car blends into the background of the forest. Oshima closes the gate to discourage trespassers, wraps the chain around it twice and locks the padlock. As before, I secure my backpack to the rack on the back of the car. The top's down this time. Back to the city, Oshima says. I nod. I'm sure you enjoyed living all alone with nature like that, but it's not easy to live there for a long time, Oshima says. He puts on sunglasses and fastens his seatbelt. I get into the car beside him and snap on my sleep seatbelt. In theory, it's not impossible to live like that. And of course, there are people who do. But nature is actually unnatural in a way. And relaxation can be threatening. It takes experience and preparation to really live with those contradictions. 
So we are going back to the city for the time being, back to civilization. Oshima starts the engine and we head down the mountain road. This time, he is in no hurry and drives at a leisurely pace, enjoying the scenery and the rush of the wind that whips through his fringe. The unpaved road ends and we start down the narrow paved road, passing villages and fields. Speaking of contradictions, Oshima suddenly says, When I first met you, I felt a kind of contradiction in you. You are seeking something, but at the same time, you are running away from, for all your worth. What is it I am looking for? Oshima shakes his head. He glances in the rear view mirror and frowns. I have no idea. I am only saying that was the impression I had. I don't reply. From my own experience, when someone is trying very hard to get something, they don't. And when they are running away from something as hard as they can, it usually catches up with them. I am generalizing, of course. If you generalize about me, then what's in my future? I am seeking and running at the same time. That's a tough one, Oshima says and smiles. A moment passes before he goes on. If I had to say anything, it would be this. Whatever it is you are seeking won't come, won't come in the form you are expecting. Rather an ominous prophecy, like Cassandra. Cassandra? I ask. The Greek tragedy. Cassandra was a queen of Troy who prophesied. prophesied. She was a temple priestess and Apollo gave her the power to predict fate. In return, he tried to force her to sleep with him, but she refused and he put a curse on her. Greek gods are more mythological than religious figures. By that I mean they have the same character flaws humans do. They fly off the handle, get randy, jealous, forgetful, you name it. He takes a small box of lemon drops out of the glove compartment and pops one in his mouth. He motions for me to take one and I do. What kind of a curse was it? The curse on Cassandra? I nod. The curse Apollo laid on her was that all her prophecies would come true, but that nobody would ever believe them. On top of which, her prophecies would all be unlucky ones, predictions of betrayals, accidents, deaths, and country falling into ruin. That sort of thing. People not only didn't believe her, they, begin to, they began to despise her. If you haven't read them yet, I really recommend the place by Euripides or Aeschylus. They deal with a lot of the essential problems we struggle with even today in Koros. Koros? What's that? That's what they call the chorus they used in Greek plays. They stand at the back of the stage and explain in unison the situation or what the characters are feeling deep inside. Sometimes they even try to influence the characters. It's a very convenient device. Sometimes I wish I had my own chorus standing behind me. Are you able to prophesy? No such luck, he smiles. For better or for worse, I don't have that kind of power. If I sound as if I'm always predicting ominous things, it's because I'm a pragmatist. I use deductive reasoning to generalize and I suppose this sometimes ends up sounding like unlucky prophecies. You know why? Because reality is just the accumulation of ominous prophecies come to life. You have only to open a newspaper on any given day and weigh the good news versus the bad and you will see what I mean. Oshima carefully changes gear at each curve, the kind of practiced gear changing you hardly notice. 
Only the change in the sound of the engine gives it away. There is one piece of good news though, he says. We have decided to take you in. You will be a staff member of the Kumura Memorial Library, which I think you are qualified for. Instinctively, I glance at him. You mean I'm going to be working at the library? More precisely, from now on, you will be part of the library. You are going to be staying in the library, living there. You'll open the doors when it's time for the library to open, shut them when it's time to close up. As I said before, you seem to be a pretty self-disciplined sort of a person and fairly strong. So I don't imagine the job will be very difficult for you. Miss Aiki and I aren't all that strong physically, so it'll really help us out a lot. Other than that, you'll just help with small day-to-day -day things. Nothing to speak of, really. Making delicious coffee for me, going out shopping for us. We prepared a room that's attached to the library for you to stay in. It was originally a guest room, but we don't have any guests staying over, so it hasn't been used for a long time. That's where you will live. It has its own shower too. The best thing is that you will be in the library, so you can read whatever you like. But why? I begin to say, but can't finish. Why are we doing this? It's based on a very simple principle. I understand you. And Miss Saiki understands me. I accept you and she accepts me. So even if you're some unknown 15-year-old runaway, that's not a problem. So what do you think? I give it some thought. All I was looking for was a roof over my head. That's all that matters right now. I don't really know what it means to become part of the library. But if it means I can live there, I'm grateful. At least I won't have to commute anymore. Then it's settled, Oshima says. Let's go to the library then so you can become a part of it. We join the highway and pass a number of towns, a giant billboard for a loan company, a petrol station with gaudy decorations, a glass enclosed restaurant, a love hotel made up to look like a European castle, an abandoned video shop with only its sign left, a pachinko place with an enormous car park, McDonald's, 7-Eleven, Yoshinoya, Denny's. Noisy reality starts to surround us. The hiss of 18-wheelers, air brakes, horns and exhaust. Everything near me until now, the fire in the stove, the twinkle of the stars, the stillness of the forest has faded away. I find it hard even to imagine them. There are a couple of things you should know about Miss Saiki, Oshima says. When she was little, my mother and Miss Saiki were classmates and very close. She says that Miss Saiki was a bright little girl. She got good grades, was good at composition, sports of all kinds, and could play the piano well too. She was the best at whatever she tried, and beautiful. Of course, she is still quite a stunning person. I nod. When she was still in grade school, she had a sweetheart, the eldest son of the Komura family. A distant relative actually. They were the same age and made a handsome couple, a regular Romeo and Juliet. They lived near each other and were never apart. And when they became adults, um, they fell in love. They were like one body and one spirit, according to my mother. We are waiting at a red light and Oshima looks up at the sky. When the signal turns green, he accelerates hard and we zoom out in front of a tanker. Do you remember what I told you in the library about how people are always wandering around, searching for their other half? 
that part about male male female female male females right what aristophanes said how we stumble through our lives desperately fumbling for our other half miss psyche and that young man never had to do that they were born with their other half right there in front of them they were lucky ashima nods absolutely up to a point he rubs his chin with his palm as if he is checking how well he shaved there's no trace of a razor his skin is as smooth as porcelain when the young man was 18 he went to tokyo to go to college he had good grades and a degree course he was interested in he also wanted to see what the big city was like she went to a local college and studied the piano this is a conservative part of the country and she came from an old fashioned kind of family she was an only child and her parents didn't want her going off to tokyo so the two were separated for the first time in their lives as though god had cut them cleanly apart with a knife of course they wrote to each other every day it might be good for us to try being apart like this he wrote to her then we can really tell how much we mean to each other but she didn't believe that she knew their relationship was real enough that they didn't need to go out of their way to test it it was a one in a million union fated to be something that could never be broken apart she was absolutely sure of that but he wasn't or maybe he was but simply didn't accept it so he went ahead and left for tokyo thinking that overcoming a few obstacles would strengthen their love for each other men are like that sometimes when she was 19 miss saiki wrote a poem set to music and played the piano and sang it it was a melancholy melody innocent and lovely the lyrics on the other hand were symbolic contemplative hard to work out the contrast gave the song a kind of spirit and immediacy of course the whole song lyrics and melody was her way of crying out to her boyfriend so far away she sang the song a few times in front of people she was ordinarily shy but she loved to sing and had even been in a folk music band at college someone was very impressed by the song made a demo tape and sent it to a friend of his who was a director at a record company he loved the song and persuaded her to go to their studio in tokyo and record it it was a first time in tokyo and she was able to see her boyfriend between recording sessions they were able to love each other as before my mother said she thought they'd had a sexual relationship since they were around 14 both were rather precocious and like many precocious young people they found it hard to grow up it was as if they were eternally 14 or 15 they clung to each other and felt again the intensity of their love neither one of them had ever been attracted to anyone else even apart no one else could ever come between them sorry am i boring you with this fairy tale romance i shake my head i have a feeling you are about to come to a turning point you're right oshima says that's how stories happen with a turning point an unexpected twist there's only one kind of happiness but misfortune comes in all shapes and sizes it's as tolstoy tolstoy said happiness is an allegory unhappiness a story anyway the record went on sale and was a huge hit it kept on selling a million copies 2 million 
I'm not sure of the exact figure. At any rate, it was a record-breaking number at that time. Her photo was on the record sleeve. A picture of her seated at a grand piano in the studio, smiling at the camera. She had not prepared any other song, so the B-side of the single was an instrumental version of the same song with a piano and orchestra. She, of course, playing the piano. A beautiful performance. It was around 1970. The song was on all the radio stations at the time. My mother said, "This was before I was born, so I don't know for sure." This was her one and only song as a professional singer. She didn't put out an LP or a follow-up single. I wonder if you have heard that song. Do you listen to the radio much? I shake my head. I hardly ever listen to radio. You probably haven't heard it then, unless it's on some oldies station. Chances are you haven't. But it's a wonderful song. I have it on a CD and listen to it every once in a while. when miss psyche is not around of course she hates any mention of the song she doesn't like anyone bringing up the past what's the name of the song kafka on the shore oshima says kafka on the shore that's correct kafka tamura the same name as you a strange coincidence don't you think but kafka is in my real name tamura is to but you chose it right i nod I decided a long time ago that this was the right name for the new me. That's the point. I would say Oshima says Miss Saiki's boyfriend died when he was 20. Oshima goes on. Just when Kafka on the Shore was a hit, his college was on strike during the period of student unrest and shutdown. He went to bring supplies to a friend of his who was manning the barricades sometime before 10 one night. The students occupying the building mistook him for a leader of an opposition faction. He did look a lot like him and grabbed him, tied him to a chair and interrogated him as a spy. He tried to explain that they had made a mistake, but every time he did, they smashed him with a steel pipe or a baton. When he fell to the floor, they would kick him with their boots. By dawn he was dead. His skull was caved in, his ribs broken, his lungs ruptured. they tossed his corpse out on the street like a dead dog two days later the college asked the national guard to come in and within a couple of hours the student revolt was put down and several of them were arrested and charged with murder the the students confessed what they had done and were put on trial but since it wasn't premeditated two of them were convicted of involuntary manslaughter and given short prison sentences his death was totally pointless Miss Aiki never sang again. She locked herself in a her room and wouldn't talk to anybody, even on the phone. She didn't go to his funeral and dropped out of college. After a few months, people suddenly realized she was no longer in town. Nobody knows where she went or what she did. Her parents refused to discuss it. Maybe even they didn't know where she had been. She vanished into thin air. Even her best friend, Oshima's mother, didn't have a clue. Rumors flew that she'd been committed to a mental hospital after a failed suicide attempt in the deep forest surrounding Mount Fuji. Others said a friend of a friend had spotted her on the streets of Tokyo. According to this person, she was working in Tokyo as a writer or something. Other rumors had it she was married and had a child. 
there was never any evidence though to support these stories 20 years passed no matter where she was or what she was doing all this time miss aiki didn't want for money her royalties for kafka on the shore were deposited in a bank account and even after taxes they still amounted to a substantial sum she got royalties every time the song was played on the radio or included in an oldies compilation so it was simple for her to live far away out of the limelight besides her family was rich and she was their only daughter suddenly though 25 years later miss saiki reappeared in takamatsu the ostensible reason was her mother's death her father had died 5 years before but she hadn't come to the funeral she held a small service for her mother and then after things had quieted down sold the house she had been born and raised in she moved into an apartment she had bought in a quiet part of the city and seemed to settle down again after a time she had some talks with the kumura family the head of the family after the death of the eldest son was his younger brother 3 years younger it was just the two of them and no one knows what they talked about exactly the upshot was that miss saiki became the head of the komura library even now she is slim and beautiful and has the same neat smart look you see on the record sleeve of kafka on the shore but there's one thing missing that lovely innocent smile she still smiles from time to time definitely a charming smile but it's always limited somehow a smile that never goes beyond the moment a high invisible wall surrounds her keeping people at arm's length every morning she drives her gray volkswagen golf to the library and drives it back home in the evening in her hometown she has very little to do with former friends and relatives if they should meet uh, she makes polite conversation but this seldom goes beyond a few standard topics if the past happens to come up especially if it involves her she makes a quick smooth segue into another topic she is always courteous and kind but her words lack the kind of curiosity and excitement you would normally expect her true feelings assuming such things exist remain hidden save for when a practical decision has to be made she never gives a personal opinion about anything she seldom talks about herself instead letting others talk nodding warmly as she listens most people though start to feel vaguely uneasy when talking to her as if they suspect they are wasting her time trampling on her private graceful dignified world and that impression is for the most part correct so even after settling into her hometown she remained a cipher a stylish woman wrapped in refined mystery something about her made it hard to approach her even her nominal employers the komura family kept their distance eventually oshima became her assistant and started to work in the library at the time oshima wasn't looking or going to college just staying at home reading and listening to music except for a few people he exchanged emails with he hardly had any friends because of his hemophilia he spent a lot of time going to see a specialist at the hospital riding around town in his mazda miata and except for his regular appointments at the university hospital in hiroshima and the occasional stay at the cabin in the kochi mountains he never left town not to imply that he was unhappy with his life 
One day, Oshima's mother happened to introduce him to Miss Saiki, who took an instant liking to him. The feeling was mutual, and the notion of working in a library intrigued him. Oshima soon became the only person Miss Saiki would normally deal with or speak to. Sounds to me as though Miss Saiki came back here to become head of the library, I say. I'd have to agree, her mother's funeral was just the occasion that brought her back. Her hometown must be so full of bittersweet memories that I imagine it was a hard decision to return. Why was the library so important to her? Her boyfriend used to live in a building that's part of the library now. He was the eldest Komura son and a love of reading was his, in his blood, I suppose. He liked to be alone, another family trait. So when he went into junior high, he insisted on living apart from the main house in a separate building and his parents gave their okay. The whole family loved reading so they could understand where he was coming from. If you want to be surrounded by books, it's fine with us, that kind of a thing. So he lived in that annex with nobody bothering him, coming back to the main house only for meals. Miss Saiki went to see him there almost every day. The two of them studied together, listened to music and talked over and most likely made love there. The place was their own bit of paradise. Both hands resting on the top of the steering wheel, Oshima looks over at me. That's where you'll be living now, Kafka, in that room. As I said, the library has been renovated, but it's the very same room. Silence on my part. Miss Psyche's life basically stopped at 20 when a lover died. No, maybe not at 20, maybe much earlier. I don't know the details, but you need to be aware of this. The hands of the clock buried inside her soul ground to a halt then. Time outside, of course, flows on as always, but she isn't affected by it. For her, what we consider normal time is essentially meaningless. Meaningless? Oshima nods, as if it doesn't exist. What you're saying is that Miss Saiki still lives in that frozen time? Exactly. I'm not saying she's a living corpse or anything like that. When you get to know her better, you'll understand. Oshima reaches out and lays a hand on my knee in a total, totally natural gesture. Kafka. In everybody's life, there's a point of no return. And in a very few cases, a point where you can't go forward anymore. And when we reach that point, all we can do is quietly accept the fact. That's how we survive. We are about to join the main highway. Before we do, Oshima stops the car, puts up the top and slips a Schubert Sonata into the CD player. There's one other thing I would like you to be aware of, he goes on. Miss Saiki has a wounded heart. To some extent, that's true for all of us, present company included. But Miss Psyche has a special individual wound that goes beyond the usual meaning of the term. Her soul moves in mysterious ways. I'm not saying she's dangerous, don't get me wrong. On a day-to-day -day level, she's definitely got her act together. Probably more than anybody else I know. She's charming, deep, intelligent. But just don't let it bother you if you notice something odd about her sometimes. Odd? I can't help asking. Oshima shakes his head. I really like Miss Saiki and respect her. I'm sure you'll come to feel the same way. This doesn't really answer my question, but Oshima doesn't say anything. With perfect timing, he changes gear, ac accelerates, 
then passes a small van just as we enter a tunnel. Thank you.